This episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast is brought to you by Bronto Software, the leading email provider to the global internet retailer 1000. For more ideas on how to improve your marketing automation and to take your email to the next level, visit www.bronto.com resources. When you think about marketplaces like Amazon, Walmart, eBay, and Jet, do you think friend or do you think foe? Or maybe they meet in that frenemy status. And when it comes to the marketplace management, do you think, ah, what am I doing? The days of listing items for sale in marketplaces are gone. In today's competitive environment, you need a game plan. You need to have a plan going in, a plan while selling, and a plan to further grow and adapt to changes. Whether you're just starting out or have a full-fledged marketplace operation, my guest today knows it all. So welcome to the Commerce Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Zakowitz, and in today's episode, I welcome to the show Greg Shoup, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Channel Advisor. And today we're going to discuss how to prepare for marketing, selling, and fulfilling on Amazon. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. Greg, you recently got back from China just this week, right? That's right. Still experiencing just a little bit of jet lag, but uh, what a tremendous trip and uh, just a lot of folks that are super excited about selling, uh, you know, here in America and, uh, you know, and providing, uh, you know, just opportunity that, uh, that they can do so that bring, uh, bring their products over. So it's a, it was a great and uh, very enlightening trip. Was that your first time over there? It was actually my first time into China mainland. I've been to Hong Kong a couple of times before, but this is my ter- first time into China mainland. Uh, interestingly, they uh, they actually in one week took me to three different cities. So I uh, landed in Shanghai, then I went to Xiamen, and then Shenzhen. Unbeknownst to me that I was actually speaking at uh, quite a large group of people, about a thousand people in each city. <laughs> uh, they didn't quite tell me about before I started the trip. So uh, I think they're trying to keep that from me and uh, keep that out of the brochure. So I'd, uh, so I'd actually show up. Uh, that's funny. How the uh, how the speak go? Uh, everything really worked well. Uh, definitely, uh, they were very interested in the content that I was providing. You know, insights into you know the holiday experience and the holiday seasonality that we're going to have here in Western Europe and uh, the United States, and different uh, different tips on how to sell. You know, and in uh, getting them up to speed on you know uh, you know the marketing, the selling, and the fulfilling aspects that uh, that our current buyers really demand. So, what was the uh, coolest thing you either did or saw while you were over there? You know, we, we in uh, in Xiamen, I guess Xiamen is one of the uh, the vacation cities in in China, and so that uh, the the hotel I stayed at overlooked the uh, the ocean. And Xiamen, if you if you understand where China is in Taiwan, it's kind of the the major city in between Taiwan and, and, and China. I overlooked the uh, the bay there, and uh, they had lots of sailboats just uh, just streaming out both of them backward and forward, and it was just really just kind of a beautiful sight with kind of a mountainous island in the background and the uh, the sailboats flowing in and out of the uh, of the harbor and the bay there was uh, was really spectacular. Very cool. So I mentioned that you are uh, with Channel Advisor. So Greg, before we get into the conversation today about uh, selling on Amazon, can you quickly give the audience a little background about what Channel Advisor does? Yeah, sure. So Channel Advisor, we are we're an e-commerce technology and services company. One of the things that we're uniquely positioned to do is to help our clients or our sellers engage with their buyers. So we, we provide techniques and activities that they can do through marketing, selling, fulfilling. And these are the three buckets of things that I'll, I'll, I really want to focus on because as we take a look at that buyer's journey as, as, as how people interact with with buying your products from sellers, there are definitely three distinct the, uh, activities that, that happen there. And uh, we, we provide these techniques or the, the technology across multiple marketplaces and digital marketing channels. Very cool. I led into the conversation of the podcast intro today with you know, it's no longer the ability to just log on, slap a product up for sale, hope it sells and, and kind of make a living. These things are, you know, marketplaces have become big business. And like every other business, it's it has policies and certain 
marketing tactics and things you should do. And I think companies realize that, but there's always this daunting task of companies who are jumping into the marketplaces for the first time, or maybe just starting out and they're still getting their feet wet a little bit. So I want to explore some of this early stage stuff with you today, Greg. So we're looking at companies that want to explore either selling on marketplaces or maybe some of those newer companies who have just started on marketplaces. What are some of those critical components that they need to really think about to either start successfully or improve upon what they're doing to be more successful? No, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, marketplace selling is is not for the faint of heart, and uh, there definitely uh, there's a, there's a pulse, there's there's a, a tempo at which uh, sellers need to understand how buyers interact with these marketplaces. And as I mentioned before, the the marketing selling and fulfilling activities and techniques and strategies really help. And what I've seen is, you know, when we take a look at the buyer's journey and you start off with, you know, the, the first touch and discovery and get to consideration and justification, and then you start ending with transaction and then eventually product advocacy, you can think about the last time you bought something on Amazon and you, you went through each stage of this buyer's journey. Uh, it may have been very quick, maybe some stages you went through in an instance, but you did interact with that stage and every step of that of that journey. So that's where that marketing selling fulfilling comes in. And in when we take a look at uh, Amazon in particular, you know, from a marketing perspective, Forrester Research has put out a, a report that had Amazon advertising has actually increased 139% over the past quarter. This is growing extremely fast. And what that tells us is uh, that sellers who are not participating in advertising are really going to start struggling here, especially when it comes into this holiday season when, when bids are up and advertising spends are up. Uh, you know, if, if you're jumping into a marketplace, you need to have the funds to be able to support the advertising element of that. Another one uh, is is content. And, and I think that content it has not changed. The importance of content has not changed over the years. You know, one of those long adages is that content is king, consistency is queen, uh, is definitely relevant. Because what content actually provides for you is, is lower cost for the ads due to relevancy. And these are normal SEO techniques. Um, it also increases conversion rates and it increases and improves your customer confidence. I, I think that Paul Blamer actually said it best uh, from HubSpot. When he said that uh, consistent, high quality, and engaging content impacts audience decision making more than any other technique, you know, and that just kind of reinforces why it's so important to have really, really strong and high quality content. The last one I would talk about that sellers need to really pay attention to is uh, free shipping. Uh, you know, free shipping uh, it really affects the decision. Actually, it affects it. About ninety six percent of customers are not willing to wait even more than four days for their package at no charge. So the customers today are demanding that the sellers offer free shipping and deliver their product in no more than four days. And that th this trend is actually just going to increase and increase and increase with the uh, you know, same day shipping. Those searches are up 120%, 24-hour instant delivery. You know, In the next couple of years, we're going to see that increase by 15% at least. And this is all information today, uh, you know, proposed by the, uh, the NRF, our National Retail Foundation or Federation. So you know, we're, we're seeing that this is really this, this fulfillment area is definitely the new battleground that uh, sellers need to pay attention to. Yeah, and I, I think the shipping is going to be 
we're already dealing with it and companies are trying to figure out the last mile, things like that. I think shipping over the next couple of years is going to be one of these hot button issues that every retailer is going to be trying to figure out how to still provide consumers what they want, that four days or less, in a lot of cases, two days or less, while still trying to maintain margins and profits and things like that. And I think pickup and buy online pickup in store is going to kind of dramatically shift the game away from kind of this this default free shipping. But that's probably another story for another time. But it's it's certainly we're going to get into shipping a little bit later in the presentation or the I keep saying presentation because you spoke to a thousand people in China. And now I'm, <laughs> I'm focused right. on it during the podcast today. Before we kind of get into the ins and outs of that early stage selling on marketplaces, I mentioned and everyone knows there's multiple marketplaces, right? Amazon is not the only one. There's Walmart, there's Jet, there's eBay, there's all these marketplaces. Now, are there major differences between these different marketplaces, or are they mostly the same, just with their own unique nuances to each of them? And if there are major differences, what are some of those? And if they're all mostly the same with the new, kind of nuanced differences, how does a company go about choosing which one is right for them? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge topic. And in fact, uh, here at Channel Advisor, you know, if you can imagine it, we actually connect to 107 different marketplaces around the world. And we haven't even scratched the surface. And you know, we're, we're getting into new areas and new markets as well. So this, the, 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 marketplace, um, the, the marketplaces are growing uh, just tremendous. But yeah, to, to answer your question, you know, there's generally two types that we've seen of marketplaces. We've got the general or traditional marketplaces. This is going to be your, you know, your Amazons and your, your Walmarts and those kind of things. And then we have our niche marketplaces. You know, here in the U.S., Amazon definitely dominates everything. I mean, they, they own about 50% of e-commerce and then uh, eBay is the next runner up and then Walmart. And interesting for the you know, factoid about Walmart last year or at the end of or at the beginning of the year, excuse me, for, um, during their uh, 2017 uh, results, um, you know, they, they made a statement and claim that they're going to uh, grow their Walmart.com, the marketplace by 40% in 2018. And uh, in fact, they've done it. And the, their second quarter results, they've actually posted a 40% growth in e-commerce on, uh, on Walmart. So Walmart is one of those that we really are watching very closely as they, uh, they're, they're growing significantly. And now the niche marketplaces, these are the ones that, uh, that I like because uh, it, they're, they're not so focused on price discounts or, you know, or one element of the buyer's journey or the other. They really allow for uh, you know, the, an aggregate of sellers to uh, post their products on it. And these are going to be like uh, Rakuten, who they've been growing uh, at 29% uh, so far. The, uh, AliExpress has posting a, a growth of 45%. Uh, Internet retailers' uh, 2018 marketplace reports but puts out a lot of these different marketplaces that have just incredible growth. And so, when we have our sellers come on to Channel Advisor, what we strongly recommend for them is to diversify their marketplace strategy. You, you don't want to sell only on Amazon. You don't only want to sell on eBay. Uh, you, you need to grow and expand. In fact, one of our customers, Seismic Audio, took us seriously on that, and they uh, they actually grew a hundred and or excuse me. Uh, 1,250% in nine months just by expanding beyond the major marketplaces that we have uh, to like Rakuten and Sears and Newegg. So they experience that growth that diversifying your marketplace strategy can bring. All right. So two questions here. You said you mentioned 107 marketplaces. No one's listening to this, Greg, so you don't have to worry about throwing yourself under a bus here. If I sat you down with a pencil and paper and asked you to write down all 107, how many do you think you could get? Uh, I could probably get to about 20 off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Out of 107, we'll assume some of those are really niche, so you've got to probably have a specific you know, business vertical or whatever for those. If you're just a general 
retailer. So you mentioned Seismic Audio, which is one of your clients, and they expanded to a couple different marketplaces. If you're just a general retailer, factoring in Amazon, let's just assume Amazon, Walmart, Jet, eBay, right? The, the kind of the big four I mentioned earlier, but there's other big ones as well. What's the right number for a company to be on? Would you say kind of most people fall within, hey, if you really have a, a a really aggressive strategy, you're probably between seven and 10 marketplaces. What number do you find most people kind of settle at? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. There's so many dependencies and variables depending on what you sell and depending on how many people you have and and you know how much management, how much money you have. There's a ton of variables. But I would say in general, we like to see our clients between, you know, uh, probably six to 10 marketplaces to, to be very, very proficient on uh, before expanding much farther than that. Very cool. All right, let's talk about actually selling on marketplaces now. So I'm a company, I'm selling widget X and, or a bunch of widgets in the X vertical. You know, I wanna begin selling on marketplaces. I can't sell anything unless my product listing is good. So it's obviously critical that companies have good product listings. How do we go about creating a, and what defines a good product listing? So let's start with some of the best practices around how to formulate or shape an actual product listing that is appealing to consumers. Yeah, well, this is this is a huge topic, and you know, it, it's very broad. Less talking for me, perfect. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, just go grab a cup of coffee. I've got the I've got the mic for a while. No, I'm kidding. I think the first place we need to really start is every marketplace is different, and so every product listing page is going to be different and it needs to be different. And that's really a lot of the struggle that people have is because they're trying to manage all of this stuff you know, by themselves. I mean, can you imagine trying to manage six separate user interfaces with six separate templates for your product listing and then you try and make an update and oh, by the way, you have hundred or 10,000 products, right? I mean, it, it becomes unmanageable. And that's that's one of those scalability issues that you find is because the product listings are are, are difficult to, to manage uh, without a, a single platform. So in general, you know, the first best practice that I would say is that you would treat your product listing like your your own website. And now you would, prov- you would provide SEO tactics to it. You know, and what that means is, you know, your keyword strategy, identify what your keywords are and those kind of things, right? And really treat it like you would, uh, that you want to drive traffic to your own website. I love the advice, treat it like your, your website, right? So focus on some of those SEO principles. I'm going to start picking apart your product listing here kind of piece by piece. Let's start with the product title uh, or name of the product. Do you need more than I'm selling an extra large green sweater? Do I need more than extra large green XYZ brand sweater in there? Or is that good enough to be broad enough for, for search terms, right? Do I want to be more broad or more specific in that title? Yeah. The, the short answer is definitely more specific. Your, your title is probably I would say probably the most important element with of that listing. I mean, it's the first experience that your buyer has with your product. So they don't they don't dive deep into your product detail or your your description. They they first see and identify with that title. So the more descriptive that you can get in there is probably the better. And your your title also needs to hold a lot of these keywords in order to bump up your search results. However. If you overload your title, it becomes confusing and hard to understand. So this is one of those SEO aspects that really becomes more of an art than a science. I mean, there's no algebraic formula for it to say, you know, you need to have these three elements and they need to say these four things or whatever. 
you know, this is going to be a, a testing and an AB test or, you know, test how, you know, how much you can actually put in there without reducing sales uh, or reducing uh, touch points. And, and then start tweaking from that point on to try and get that good mix of information uh, description and uh, without overloading the, uh, the, the visitor, the buyer. All right. And then description. And this one is probably going to have the most variance, I would imagine, based on the actual marketplace it's on. Colors, HTML markup, things like that on, on some is probably more doable than on other marketplaces. But from a description standpoint, how much info is enough and what's the formatting of that info? And, and let me give you a kind of a preface to that. I, uh, we'll talk about Amazon because I bought some coffee on Amazon this morning because I'm running out of beans. And if anyone listening that has gourmet coffee contact me. Let's talk. <laughs> so when I'm shopping on Amazon or whatever marketplace, eBay, I'm looking at, and I think I do what most people today kind of do is they they read a couple sentences and then they kind of skim on and kind of see what's there. So when I go to a marketplace, I look at the product name, I kind of find isolate the product and I want to read a little bit. And I naturally gravitate toward the high level, the bullet points, what's included, what's not included, make sure that the title matches the product. And then I sh generally shoot down the, to customer reviews. And we'll talk about customer reviews in a little bit as well. But it could be a three paragraph long description telling me how great it is and all these details. And I generally don't read all those unless there's some hesitancy on my part. So let's get into the description a little bit because I'm sure you probably have a lot to say here. How much is too much? What kind of formatting? Do I need more bullet points, less bullet points? Do I need a combination of bullet points and paragraph? What am I, what am I looking at here to make a, a an effective but enticing description. No, I, and this is really the meat and potatoes of the product listing. So you're exactly right. Uh, and uh, you know, you and the other baristas, you know, maybe skim over some of the uh, the more details when it comes to your fine coffee selections. However, there are other buyers out there that actually do read, uh, you know, every element of that description and and really pay attention. For example, you know, I've actually uh, just bought a monitor uh, the other day off of off of Amazon. Uh, you know, this was time to upgrade my monitor. And, and so I did that. And I read all the description because I was interested in resolution. I was interested in, does it uh, have anti-glare technology? I was interested in split screen technology. So a lot of different things that, that I was educating myself on about that monitor was found in that description. So uh, the best I could advice that I can provide is that you need to make your description complete because this is your sales approach to that buyer. And if the buyer has any questions, they need to be able to find all of their answers in the description because if they go on without much, without having a question answered, your conversion rate is going to go down quite a bit. I mean, there's not a whole lot of buyers that will go and, and type in your question to the seller to say, you know, hey, does it do this or does it do that? There are some, arguably, absolutely, there are some, but I think there are more that won't do it and they'll just go on to the next selection uh, than they will you know, engaging with that buyer. So be as complete as you can. If your uh, marketplace allows for HTML, then use it. Absolutely. I think that rich media, and I consider rich media as being uh, imagery, videos, content, and with what I mean by text, uh, you know, in, any kind of interactivity, anything that's a little bit more than just text, you know, words on a page is, is what I consider rich media. And I think that does a great job of showcasing your product on a description page. And, um, you know, and, and so if your uh, marketplace uh, provides or allows you to do HTML, 
take take full advantage of that. Get in there and, and write interesting content, provide interesting videos that has value, has data points, you know, and then also start describing different ways that you can use your product. You know, that will get uh, those ideas in the in the head of the buyer that will start making that more personalized and make that, that more of a personal touch that they'll take they'll take away and you know more personalized information as we know what results in higher uh, higher conversion rates so you, you provide a nice segue over to rich content and i'm going to talk about images and videos in just a second but i have a, a quick follow-up question for you 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 mentioned putting in the description think about you know start listing ways people can use these products and you know that kind of goes in the little bit lifestyle imagery which i'm sure we'll talk about here in a second but should a uh, seller think about doing things like you always hear about hey if you're selling a pair of shoes someone might search for best quality shoes or best hammer or whatever it might be so should you put things like that kind of searchable terms in the description best hammer hammer that lasts the longest kind of those keywords into the description as well or is that just overkill at that point no, I think I think absolutely, and that's that's where I'm going to get into that that value. You know, I think that having value propositions and value statements inside of the product listing or the uh, description is very very important. I mean, where else are they going to find that information? You know, in, except for that that description. So this has got to be the exhaust or the, the the complete pitch, if you will, to allow the buyer to understand everything there is to know about that product. Let's shift over to the images then. What's the minimum number a customer needs if there is one or, you know, hey, you should probably have at least three stuck in there. And then as far as when it comes to imagery, what's something people should be thinking about in terms of the types of images they use? Yeah, the, the, the answer here is use as many as you can. Every marketplace will limit the number of images that you can upload and go ahead and go to that limit. You can use a variety of different styles of, Im of imagery. You mentioned before, you know, lifestyle imagery, uh, use case imagery, those kinds of things work really, really well. I've also seen uh, some, some good traction on folks on Amazon who will show their product and then have actually text in their imagery, reinforcing value propositions. So again, the buyer might not get all the way down to the the description section, uh, but they still need to feel like they have the value understood. And that's the, the imagery is, is one of the ways that they can do that. Along with imagery, I'm going to throw in video because I think video and imagery are, are very close together. If your marketplace allows video, absolutely put a video in. There are some really easy ways to produce videos that you can use to reinforce brand uh, brand promise or brand value. You can reinforce uh, lifestyle imagery with it. You can reinforce... Um, how to use the product is, is, is another great way to use videos, but everything about your product, remember that's going to be the, 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 that page itself with the imagery, with descriptions, with titles, with everything else that's on that page. That is how the, the, uh, the buyer uh, will have that relationship with that product. So if someone uses video, should they be doing more professional video shoots or is it okay with a video to be a little less, you know, have a little less production value for lack of a better term? Yeah, I think that really depends on your product. I typically lean more toward professional videos and professional imagery. Um, you know, a lot of buyers can spot these amateur things, and you know, sometimes they can get a little hokey if you don't know exactly what you're doing. But sometimes, you know, depending on your product, maybe you have a a product that has a, a lawyer, uh, you know, a sale price, you know, where an amateur video might be fine. You know, again, this is something that you'll have to test that the, that all the sellers just really need to test and find out, you know, what will be the best usage of their their spend there. But I think having a video is better than not uh, when it comes to that. But if you can you know, afford the professional imagery, you can afford the professional video. I think those are definitely things that you can you should take advantage of. 
Very cool. And shameless plug for the uh, Commerce Marketer podcast, but episode 25, we did an episode on how to bring, uh, find more authenticity in your brand photos. So take a listen over there as well. And you might think I memorized which episode that was, but I was actually looking it up when, when you were answering. So, <laughs> all right. So we went through title, content, you know, description, images. Anything I neglected here, what else is critical with an effective product listing that maybe I neglected to, if anything, that I neglected to ask you? Yeah, I think pricing. I mean, pricing is so important. It's not the only consideration for buyers, mind you, and it's not the only consideration for, you know, with Amazon on who wins the buy box, but it definitely is a very heavy weighted one. Uh, you know, when you're buying your your gourmet coffee, I mean, I'm sure you went down the price selection of it and identified, the, you know, the price points that you wanted. And I did that with my monitor when I bought that. So, you know, pricing is incredibly important. And it also, especially on uh, the generalized marketplaces, they're very very competitive. So as a seller, you need to understand what is your competitive landscape and then price your product competitively. But you can't, you have to take in consideration where your brand value is too. So it's not always a race to the bottom wins the buyer. It's a, it's a competitive price and adhering to your, uh, your brand representation of that price, uh, along with all these different other factors that we just talked about. So pricing is definitely a, a key component of that. So I am currently sourcing some sort of gourmet coffee. I need something freshly roasted, whole beans, espresso. So if anyone, I mentioned before, if anyone has a uh, coffee shop or works for a coffee business and you want to win my business, reach out to me because the opportunity is ripe right now. <laughs> let's, let's get into pricing a little bit because you mentioned that and we were talking about this probably 10 minutes ago on shipping, consumer behavior changes, and things like that. So when it comes to pricing, marketplaces, we have map policies or minimum advertised pricing, which is probably a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. So we have that, a variety of competitors, obviously on marketplaces and in the e-commerce space in general, consumer behavior changes, perception of free shipping versus paying for shipping. What advice would you give to people who want to start or maybe just start selling on Actually, this could go for anyone selling on marketplaces when trying to determine what an effective pricing policy is for them. Yeah. So map, this is kind of one of those areas that uh, legal counsel is uh, is not only encouraged, uh, but uh, but really, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I'm going to go ahead and put my legal disclaimer out there and saying I am not a legal counsel. I am not a lawyer. You sound like one. Yeah, not even close. <laughs> not even close. As my lawyer is glaring at me right now, I'm kidding. He's not in the room. <laughs> um, I'm sure after this comment, he will be, but uh, I have my own opinion on this. So pricing policy is is extremely important. And when you're a retailer, you know you have to adhere to the minimum advertised price that, that your manufacturer uh, has out there for you that you have to follow. Uh, as far as you know, how that plays into your selling and how that plays into your landscape, you have to. The sellers just have to be the best judge of that. They're under a lot of pressure, right? They they need to be competitive. They need to position themselves and the product as as being competitive, as, as being you know the best price. The customer sed- sentiment f- for the brand, uh, you know, for the manufacturers is, is extremely important too, because you're not only representing that product, but you're representing their brand. And you know, the manufacturers are becoming more and more engaged on how those selling. Uh, strategies and the different way that you sell their products are you're engaging with that. So, you know, it's extremely important to have a good relationship with those manufacturers and to maintain that uh, map policy so that you'll have a good margin that that you'll be able to utilize. You know, one of the things that the manufacturers are are concerned with is uh, the erosion of their brand. 
And that's that's really why they have their their minimum advertised price uh, policies in place is because they don't they don't want to uh, you know get into that race to the bottom, and so being able to adhere to that allows you to keep that price where you need to, and that with with doing that you keep your margins where uh, you know you're used to having them. Um, a couple other things to consider is you know understanding that product life cycle. By understanding that that product life cycle, that you know when to end of life, what when it's obsolete, um, it really helps you understand and allow provides the ability for sellers to manage their shelves. And then at the end of the day, that's probably the most important part for a seller is what's on my shelf. You know, we can't have things that are lasting a long time on there or getting dusty on the shelf because that that shelf space is valuable to to any retailer. And you want to be able to put the uh, high demand products on those shelves as much as possible. So understanding that product lifecycle will allow you to develop that strategy to, uh, to make sure that those products uh, are, are high volume are being showcased. So you mentioned margins before, and I think even if you take marketplaces out of it, retailers are struggling with this because they just, they've kind of backed themselves in the corner with discounting and overly discounting and kind of being forced to discount the drive sales, which obviously eats away at margins. And marketplaces, you know, it's probably doubly so because the marketplace is taking the cut of your sales and things like that. So it shrinks a little bit. If you're a smaller company that, or just any company and you look at maybe it's based on the products you sell where you just have naturally have smaller margins and you just have to charge for shipping. Can you provide any suggestions or advice for companies that have to charge for shipping and how to overcome that from the consumer standpoint. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you know, it's a tried and true practice to put shipping, uh, your shipping prices and fulfillment costs into the price of the product. And and so we have that, as you mentioned before, the illusion of free shipping. Um, and, you know, if, if you are not able to do that, if sellers are have just gotten their margins down to the bare minimum and they still cannot pay for the fulfillment out of it, there, I think there's probably about two ways you can handle this uh, without, you know, uh, reassessing your product mix. One is bundling your product with accessories that make sense. So if you have a core product, we'll go back to your coffee, right? So let's say you're, you're going to buy a bag of coffee. Well, you know, maybe you need a measuring spoon. Maybe you need filtered water. Maybe you need, you know, other things that can go along with the core thing that you want to buy. When you, when you bundle things together, you spread your margin out across multiple products. And then you now you have a higher, a greater uh, margin percentage to play with that can start helping to pay for some of these fulfillment costs. Another thing to do is that, you know, if you only have one carrier that, that you're relying on to deliver your product, you know, it's one thing that we actually mentioned here at Channel Advisor to our sellers is that you diversify your shipping carriers. So that means that don't just have one account set up, and have multiple accounts set up. Each shipping carrier has advantages in different areas. One example for uh, that, that I can put out there is that like the United States Postal Service, you know, they are really, really great at delivering uh, lighter weight packages you know, within three or four days. And it was, so the three to four day that checks the box as far as the consumer, what they expect. And then the USPS has a, you know, a very good rate on, uh, on those products. If your products are, are light enough to go into the priority mail, mail system. So, you know, it, having things like that and understanding how the shipping carriers and your fulfillment processes work and, and able to take advantage of that and diversify it, I think can also help reduce the cost that it that it takes to ship um, because at the end of the day 
you have to have free shipping in order to be competitive in this market. Amazon has really dictated these rules. In fact, in Amazon, uh, in the Amazon world, uh, two days free shipping is uh, is the de facto, and that's that's what everyone expects. And you know, in fact, when when I bought my monitor, I bought it on Prime, which I knew I was going to get it in two days. In fact, I paid extra. I paid you know four dollars and ninety nine cents to have it in one day, uh, just because I you know I, I needed it then and there. So you know, allowing that buyer to have that flexibility to get it really fast. And I don't mind paying just a couple of, a couple of dollars more for it, but if not, then having it delivered in two days, uh, is, is very important to me. So sellers need to be able to find more margin. They need to be able to find ways to deliver those packages free and free within three to four days. And you can pay for two days here and there, but you really need to find ways to deliver that two days with it built into your margin. So obviously, Prime being a membership service, it kind of changes the ballgame when consumers are shopping for products. They might filter based on free shipping or the two-day shipping for Prime uh, eligible purchases, which if you're a company that charges, say, five bucks for shipping, you kind of get cut out of the, the, the loop there. Should retailers who have to pay for shipping and find themselves being cut out of search results, should they really worry about that or should they... Would your advice be to kind of focus on your core customer, focus on the people that maybe are not the Prime members or that are maybe okay paying for shipping even though they have Prime because there's some sort of value add to maybe the the exclusivity of the product or whatever it might be? What's the best way for a company to really handle the fact they have to charge when they can get cut out of search results? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely hard to sell a product that you're not considered for. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that retailers explore how to engage with Prime. I mean, uh, the Prime membership, I think now is a, above 100 million Prime users now. I mean, it's it's ridiculous of, of what they do. And, and, and these Prime users, these, these subscription uh, uh, buyers, they will filter on Prime. They look for that badge and that badge is their consideration. That is their, their first point of entry into the consideration phase of what they want to go buy. So uh, for retailers that want to be considered for that, they, I, I think it's important that they have, uh, you know, En-ROADS into Prime. Now, now how, to, how to actually manage that is an interesting dilemma that they have because, you know, they can, they can ship their products to FBA and, and then, you know, that will be Prime. But, of course, they have to pay for that, um, you know, and, and so they have to test, you know, how much margin do they actually have. And, you know, and it, they also there's also seller fulfilled Prime. You know, they can go and get certified themselves out of their own warehouse to be able to have a prime badge as long as they meet the service level agreements of Amazon. So they need to be able to be able to prove that they can deliver in a, uh, you know, within the two days and that they have a very good seller rating. And, and once, you know, there are a couple of other things that, that Amazon requires, but, you know, retailers can't actually, uh, you know, certify themselves to be able to sell prime as long as they meet that criteria. So I think it's worth retailers exploring and if, if they can go do it, I think it opens up a market for them. I would not put all, I wouldn't just go all or none. Uh, you know, I think Prime is something that the, the product mix is important for Prime. And I think that, you know, you start taking a look at your very high volume products or even, the, you know, the, your high volume products to, to really target on that that you will have, uh, you know, listed on pro- with a, with a prime badge or not. Typically, the slower volume, the lower volume products, uh, typically don't do super well with prime, and, and people will probably pay a little bit more for the shipping anyway for for something like that. But uh, definitely high volume products. And then if you can use FBA, that's awesome. Do it. If you if you want to try and control more of that uh, that journey, then uh, seller fulfilled prime is probably the best way to go. Excellent. And I'm gonna, we're going to talk about FBA here in just a couple minutes. We were talking about the product description and the, the overall listing here. And I think this is a good time to kind of talk about customer reviews because reviews certainly 
are part of that listing. But I think that's something which, if you do charge for shipping, your reviews might be the difference maker between whether someone selects you or not, whether you charge for shipping or not. So let's talk about it. So it's buyer confidence, seeing good reviews. And there's obviously fake reviews on marketplaces and there's websites that you can plug the product in there and it'll, it'll check to see the quality of those reviews or not. But reviews are kind of a big thing for customers, whether it's marketplaces or just regular e-com sites. What are some strategies that a company can employ to, to kind of begin aggregating those reviews and, and doing so in a meaningful way? Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. Reviews are extremely important. I mean, that that is the uh, the advocacy portion of that buyer's journey. That's what brands and retailers want is be able to have reviews of those products and uh, and having all positive reviews is not always the best, and clearly all negative reviews is not the best. You know, it's got to be authentic. Thwarting all those uh, the fake reviews too is 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 challenging for, for retailers. You know, in fact, reviews are are important. In fact, you know, from uh, from Northwestern University, they actually conducted a research topic and they concluded that uh, 95% of shoppers read online reviews before making that purchase decision. And you just, you mentioned it when you're buying coffee, you know, you went over the, the couple of bullet points, you went down to the review, reviews to make sure that this, yep, everything matches up. You know, that's a very common buying uh, strategy. And, and so managing your reviews becomes so important. And so there are a lot of technologies out there today that help you aggregate all those in. Because if you're going to sell on multiple marketplaces, just like updating product descriptions is challenging when you have 10,000 SKUs and you're going to go update them across 10 marketplaces. I mean, that's just a lot of manpower to go do that. Reviews are kind of the same way. You know, it, it's really difficult to manage all of the reviews, you know, for all of your different marketplaces that you're on. And, uh, you know, so I'd really recommend looking for technology that help aggregate them all into one place that you can you can respond to the buyer, especially when they're negative. And, uh, you know, it, there, are, there are chances that you can uh, can help turn a negative response into a positive. And those are still those are very, very helpful. And people people really look at that. The worst thing that you could go do is ignore a negative comment. Just being able to see, even say at the bare minimum, you know, hey, I, Sorry that that didn't work out for you. You know, we really pride, your, pride ourselves on this product and, you know, we really respect your opinion. Even something like that is acceptable. But, you know, of course, you can't do it all the time, but it, it provides that authenticity that I think buyers are looking for. So uh, reviews, I guess, in, in summary, reviews, extremely important. Uh, they, they do well at, uh, at, can, at helping convert customers into, uh, into buyers. You have to manage your reviews and uh, use technology to help aggregate all that stuff together to help you uh, be able to respond to uh, both negative and positive reviews. You said a couple of things there that I think were really powerful. And I want to ask a quick question on these because you mentioned having all five-star reviews probably isn't the best. And I would agree with you. If I go to a product and it's all five-star reviews, I'll still consider the product, but I'm somewhat skeptical at that point because someone is always, in this world is always upset at something. <laughs> You're much more likely to get a negative review than a positive review, right? You look at like Travel Advisor or whatever, um, any sort of these, these travel sites. People like to complain about bad experiences and be heard. Yeah. Absolutely. What is your, you bought a monitor the other day. When you're looking at reviews for that monitor, I normally go in there. I, I take a, a look at the couple of the most recent reviews and then I automatically shoot down to the one star reviews and I read those to figure out, is it a shipping thing they're complaining about? Is it something, you know, minutia they're complaining about, or is there a defect in the product, right? Or is it just a poorly designed or cheap made, cheaply made product? And then I, I shoot to like the three the two to four star review, kind of that I usually run the threes to figure out, is it just an average product? And then I kind of go back to the five stars 
And that's just the way I look at things, right? It gives me a, a better scale, but I like to look at those one-star reviews. And to your point, if you would, if the seller addresses something, hey, you know, this thing broke and everyone else says, oh, this thing lasts five years and the seller responds with like, oh, we're so sorry. And they try to take care of it. I look at that and be like, oh, this company's kind of got my back here. So when you're looking at your monitor, when you're you're shopping around, what was your process for looking at reviews? No, I, I think we actually have very similar ones. You know, I, I do look at some of the, the good ones just to get the baseline. And then I go straight to the very bad ones. And we look at it about the same way. I call it user error. And, uh, you know, as far as what, the, you know, what looks like of it. Yeah. I know enough about monitors to say, you know, was it something that they couldn't figure out? I mean, were they trying to plug an HDMI cord into a VGI slot? It probably happened. Yeah. You get stuff like that. You know, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that. I won't look at that. But there are some things that, uh, that have actually turned me away from products in those negative reviews that maybe, you know, from the monitor example, you know, there's one that, um, that they said that the split screen was flickery and it had a flicker problem on it. Well, that's something that would be important to me. And I, you know, a couple more reviews said it and they're, they're asking for the, uh, the manufacturer to fix it and no response from the manufacturer whatsoever. So that turned me away from that monitor because, you know, the manufacturer was not willing to respond to that or the, the seller, I should say, I don't know if it's a manufacturer or not, but the seller was, did not respond. So that was a, that was a negative impact on me. There was a problem with the technology that was an impact on me. And so I went to a, a different listing, even though that listing had, you know, three and a half, four stars, it's it still, there were things that were important to me that were not addressed and I didn't feel comfortable with. So I think from a seller perspective, it's so important to respond to those negative reviews so that the buyer feels comfortable that you, the buyer doesn't leave with questions of, you know, did that really happen? Or, you know, where, what, what is the seller's uh, response to this? You provide that up front. And I think that can thwart a lot of the, the negative opinion and negative skepticism uh, associated with those negative reviews. Video reviews are something that sellers are trying to aggregate more and more. And I, I found myself actually liking video reviews from people that make purchases, they've they've swayed me away from products before and they've swayed me to products before. Are there any strategies that sellers can implement or to try to aggregate more video reviews? Because obviously there's more work involved with doing a video review and posting it than there is just typing up and, and marking some stars and doing a, a brief you know, synopsis of your experience. Any strategies you could recommend for sellers trying to collect more video reviews? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not uncommon to have these um, uh, open box, you know, open, open the box kind of reviews, kind of those those things. I think those are uh, not only entertaining, but also very, uh, very unveiling on, you know, what is that experience that the uh, that the that the buyer will go through when they unbox, you know, the, that product. So I think unboxing videos are, are very impactful. I think that use case videos are, are very impactful as well. So sellers can can describe different use cases on, on how to use the product. I think those are those are uh, significant. Also, go ahead and ask users uh, on your follow up to post videos. When I bought uh, several products on, on Amazon, I, I received emails from the sellers asking me to post a review. Put in that in, into that request. Hey, you know, go ahead, just take a quick picture or a quick video. Of what tell tell us what you think. Something like that, encouraging the uh, buyer to post those types of reviews on a video, I think are very compelling. And like you said, I mean, you you watch them, I watch them. You know, it's something that is is different. It's not just always reading something, uh, and you and you get more out of a video review. You know, you're able to see facial features, the nonverbal communication, your the pitch, the tone of the voice, those kind of things that 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 can sometimes play subconsciously a part of your evaluation of that product. 
Awesome. Great answer. I think for companies or sellers, they should certainly be focusing on doing everything they can to get those reviews because, again, it is powerful. And we just talked about how it can certainly sway a, a customer to uh, to purchase from you. You mentioned FBA a few minutes ago, and I, I want to touch on that um, briefly because obviously this comes to part of that fulfillment side. FBA fulfillment by Amazon Obviously, it comes from a cost on both doing it and then not doing it, right? Because if you're not doing it, you're shipping on your own, and that's going to come with a cost and, and things associated with that. So how does a company decide whether FBA is right for them? Is it a certain level of sales they should be looking at to consider it? Is it uh, like a, something like a prime day? Hey, we'll do it for prime day, but not the rest of the time. Or is there are there other considerations companies should be looking at to figure out how they want to actually fulfill their products? No, you're you're exactly right, and I think the biggest, the number one thing you need to decide is do I want to do I want to have a prime badge or not, and, and that's going to be the the first decision that you have to make. I mean, again, without the prime badge, you're going to lose. You might you have an opportunity of losing a hundred million buyers because those are you know the buyers that pay to subscribe for for prime, and they're going to be much more geared or you know looking for that prime badge when they look for products. So, you know, FBA is the easiest way to get that prime badge. You know, there is seller fulfilled prime, but we'll talk about that. In, and I'll, I'll discuss that in a little bit. But from an FBA standpoint, you want to start identifying products that are high volume. Amazon starts really charging uh, storage fees for products that sit on their shelves in their warehouses. And so if, if you have a lower volume or a slow volume product, you know, th- there is going to be extensive costs that go along with FBA as that product sits and collects dust on the on, on the warehouses in Amazon. So you have to be very careful about which products you select and you choose to be part of Prime and part of FBA. Uh, and that's why I recommend that, that high volume sweet spot. So you want products that are accelerating out of the uh, FBA warehouses. They're shooting off the shelves as fast as they can. Uh, because that will keep your fees low for as far as uh, storage. Also, Amazon likes that that transaction because, of course, they're getting a cut on every every time that there's a transaction happening. So they they like that too. So they encourage that high volume product to be part of their FBA system. All people also choose FBA uh, because they do not have a, a fulfillment mechanism. You know, they just they don't have the, uh, the a warehouse that they can they're they're consistent with. They don't have a three PL that they've uh, they, they've engaged with. So it's, it's their their way of just not having to deal with fulfillment at all, and they just send you know pallets of products over to the FBA warehouse and let them take care of everything. And then they, they're going to get their margin more on volume than they are on uh, you know on individual sales. With that said, you know I, I think that uh, again a diverse strategy in fulfillment is incredibly important. I mean, not every single product of let's say if you have ten thousand SKUs, and unfortunately, not all ten thousand are going to be high volume products, and so you're going to need a place to put the medium and low volume products as well without having to pay all these additional fees that FBA would would start ensuing on you. And I think this is like where a three PL or a third party logistics facility comes into play because you can actually have and negotiate out your your service level agreement with that three PL. And you know these guys are really good for those medium volume and the medium weight products that can be delivered within the three to four days. So, you know based on your your service level agreement. 3PLs are also really, really great. And, you know, for this holiday season coming up, as you start looking at, you know, the ramp up and the, the, the additional inventory, 
you may not need to, you know, push everything into FBA. You may not need to push everything into your garage uh, if, if, if that's where you're storing your stuff. I mean, and, and 3PLs would be great for seasonality because you could ramp them up very, very quickly. And then when you're done, you ramp them back down. The last one is going to be for your large and your low volume products, your your awkward products that, that's hard to ship. You know, and these products that are, these products probably are better geared for customers to pay for shipping because they're large, they're heavy, uh, they're awkward, they, they, they take special, uh, you know, special delivery mechanisms or whatever they are, people will pay for those because, you know, that it's a lower volume product. It's, they don't expect it to have the uh, the premium free or the prime badge on that. So uh, you'd probably do those lower volume products yourself, uh, you know, just manage that yourself the best you can. But it allows you to accelerate your high volume products by going into FBA and you're manage your medium volume products without killing yourself on, uh, on, uh, on warehousing by, by employing a, uh, a 3PL. Great advice. I, th- I think right there was uh, worth the cost of admission for the show today. You mentioned <laughs> seasonality. I think this is a good way to put a bow on the conversation. See what I did there, Greg? <laughs> I did. No, I wouldn't notice. <laughs> so we've got the holiday season coming up and this is going to from, I mean, from email marketing to ad spend to paid search. I mean, everywhere and in between people are going to be ramping up for a busy season. So let's talk about sponsored ads and and promoted listings for a minute here. So when someone's looking to pay for ads on marketplaces, what factors should they be considering to determine when the timing is right, whether it's seasonal throughout the course of the year, when's the bang for the buck worth it? The timing is all the time, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it Advertising, like I mentioned, you know, really early on, you know, advertising on Amazon is growing like crazy, and it's interesting. I was talking to a to a customer, in fact, in China, and uh, you know, they were, you know, I was telling them about advertising on Amazon, and they, and uh, you know, I was also talking about uh, Google Shopping, and you know, he he was he made an interesting comment. He's you know, because I was I was telling that that the Google Shopping actions, their 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 Google Express Marketplace is is uh, starting to come up, and and you know, with the different strategies that you need to take with Google. And he said, well, you know, Google's an, Google's always been in advertising and, you know, Amazon is, is started in e-commerce. And I said, well, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, but Amazon's actually moving into the advertising space and Google's moving into the e-commerce space. Fast forward several years, they're going to be very similar companies. As we take a look at Amazon and advertising, it is so important to participate in that. And you know what it really comes down to is your selection of keywords and make sure that your selection and keywords is, you know, is relevant to the content that you have to tie all that back together. But it also comes down to bidding. And so when you have high seasonality times like you, like the holiday season coming up, it's going to be so important to aggressively bid on your keywords. However, at the end of the season, it's very important to start rolling that back into uh, you know more uh, uh, an average or you know a pre-holiday spend there because you don't want to aggressively spend past the holidays uh, if if that's not your strategy. So d- definitely, a wrapping down after seasonality is extremely important. Another really important factor is the uh, the mobile. Uh, through your device modifiers. So, you know, mobile advertising or mobile traffic has has grown, uh, I'd like to say geometrically. I mean, we're, we're beyond exponentially at this point. It's more of a geometric growth. I mean, it's so huge and so important uh, how people shop and they shop now with their eyes and their hand on, on, a mo- on a mobile device doing price comparisons, doing, you know, hey, does Amazon have this cheaper or better or whatever? You know, they're, they're always using the, their, their mobile device as they shop. So advertising on a mobile device is, 
are uh, are very key as well. So you know, identifying your device modifiers, you know, versus desktop versus mobile, and then. It, really increasing aggressively uh, bidding on your keywords will help your advertising through seasonality like like the holiday season coming up. Awesome advice. So Greg, I, I know I neglected to ask you something today. So is there anything I neglected that you feel is really important for those either looking to get into marketplaces or to refine or expand their marketplace presences? Anything I'm neglecting to ask you? Yeah, no, I, I think probably the best thing to do is is evaluate which marketplaces are right for your products. I mean, you know, Amazon, of course, they're very they're, they're really dominant. I mean, they, they own like what, 50% of e-commerce in the United States. However, the downside is, is that it's extremely competitive on Amazon. So, uh, you know, unless you are willing to, you know, manage your business and spend the money that you need to spend in order to be considered on Amazon, maybe Amazon might not be the exact right place to start. Look for some of these niche marketplaces. You know, not only do they offer a great opportunity because they're they're coming in for, with uh, new buyers that don't shop. You know, the other fifty percent that's not shopping on Amazon, but they're they're coming in with with targeted buyers that that expect products within a certain category, and there's a little less competition there. It's a little less focused on on discount pricing that may, you might be able to have a, a great experience selling on. So I would say uh, the thing that that is really important, especially as you start looking at expanding out is making sure that you're going on to the marketplaces that are right for your product, not just that because that's where the mass herds are, are congregating. You want to be able to be noticed and be considered and, and not have to be a deal with that whole race to the bottom. So that, that deals with the right selection of which marketplace to sell on. Awesome. Greg, you got a couple minutes to stick around for some fun questions? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So raging debate here is a hot dog a sandwich? Well, it is between two pieces of bread, so I'm I'm willing to bet you know uh, the, the hot dog is a sandwich. I'm going to throw my own little twist on that, though. I think it's only if you have condiments on that that it makes it a sandwich. I think if you just have one hot dog between uh, within the bun, uh, that's just a hot dog. Put it Chicago style. You put those cucumbers. You put the the uh, carrots on there. Some good, nice uh, hot uh, roasted mustard. I think you got yourself a gourmet sandwich. So you are completely throwing a wrench into this whole hot dog thing now because now I'm going to have two questions for each, each of these. <laughs> I'm making it my own. If there's nothing on it, it's not a sandwich. That's right. If I get, say, a if I order a turkey sandwich and I just get turkey and nothing else, is that a sandwich or is that like, what do you call that then? I call that a crime. I mean, <laughs> you have an such a great opportunity to have a delightful experience in a sandwich. And if you just have some deli meat uh, across two pieces of bread, all you're doing is, is providing yourself substance. And I think you can do so much more than that. Fair enough. If you're forced to do karaoke tonight, what's your karaoke go-to song? You know, it's interesting. When I was in uh, when in college, we all went karaoke. All of my buddies, uh, they always want to sing Hotel California. And uh, if you've ever remember that song or you sung that song, it uh, the, it goes up pretty high, uh, to be honest with you, and it's a lot higher than I can sing. So uh, I, I would say that uh, it's it's a very poor rendition, but I would go with uh, Hotel California would be my go-to karaoke song. Are you an Eagles fan? Uh, just that song, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I don't, I don't care for the Eagles. People hate me for it. No, but it's a great song. It is. Don't be a hater. <laughs> no, they, they hate me for many other reasons than, than not liking the Eagles. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the food theme here. If you could only have one meal for the rest of your life, what would you choose? One meal or one food? I'll let you choose. I mean, if you're going meal, you can't name like 20 things, right? We're primarily searching for the, the, the meat and potatoes, for lack of a better term. 
Uh, so I would say eggs because I think eggs are probably one of the most diverse things that you can, uh, that you'll be able to cook. You know, you can make so many different things, you know, definitely make things out of them. So, so that'd be my, my go-to food is, is eggs. My, my meal, if I were to pick, you know, what is that, that meal that I would go to for the rest of my life, I would be 700 pounds and have a barbecue sauce dripping off my chin from pulled pork. Well, you live in a good state for that. So you're, you're based in North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham area, just like myself. Absolutely. Now I'll tell you, I'll throw it out there. I'm an Eastern barbecue fan. So I'm a vinegar based barbecue fan. Ah, see, I'm a tomato based guy. You know, there, there's a special spot somewhere for you. That's not North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) It's a warm, fiery place. I'll guarantee you. I could roast pork there though, which is, which is all right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Greg, you're the second person that said eggs on this. I had, um, Stephanie Franking from, she's based in Germany on an episode. I don't know the number offhand, but she said eggs as well. She loves eggs. Interesting. So you're in good company. Hey, it's an, it's the next big trend. That's right. Start a trend, make a friend as they say. All right. One more question for you. Well, I guess two more questions for you. Sure. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know, I, I'm going to ask you to name as many something as you can in 15 seconds. So I'm going to hit you up for zoo animals. So I need you to name as many zoo animals as you can in 15 seconds. Go. Uh, aardvark, bear, lion, gorilla, cheetah, tiger, snake, tortoise, turtle, polar bear, elephant, giraffe, lions. Time's up. Whew. So it's at uh, 13 by my count, which is not always accurate, but I've got you at 13 right now. That was probably the most stress I've had in a long time. I want you to know that. That is, he's got a good job over there then, man. <laughs> that's all I do is talk all day. That's what I do. Uh, that's good. That's, I mean, one a second. That's unbelievable. And they were actually all zoo animals. I had, um, I think it was John D'Amato. It was really funny, but he was like, deer. I'm like, he's based in New York City. And I go, yeah, a lot of deer in your zoo there? He's like, I don't know. I'm just naming animals. I said, fair enough. Yeah, so, in New yeah, York City, absolutely. it might be true. <laughs> So, Greg, any questions for me today? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I have one. You know, at Bronto, you know, uh, email is uh, email is super important, especially when you're coming into the holiday season. And I was doing a, I was doing a webinar on the holiday season and, and the different trends for e for uh, e commerce. And uh, you know, email was like twenty percent of referral traffic come out of emails. And so, from Bronto's standpoint, you know, what's what's that big thing that that you guys are working on? To, uh, that can help our, our sellers, uh, you know, especially from channel advisor. I'm going to cheat here a little bit for for our channel advisor sellers. When we start getting into marketing, you know, what 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 are those email tactics that can uh, that you would recommend for for my guys to help out with? Yeah, so I, I think if you're looking at general holiday email trends, I, I think the couple things to really focus on are, and I think these are things that uh, I say focus on because they've been growing trends, but they really emerged themselves last year. We talked about discounting earlier today. Uh, retailers have just discounted the heck out of them, and you're going to see discounts starting in October this year for Black Friday and things like that. I think things to really think about are, you know, when you're looking at, you you need to start your Black Friday and Cyber Monday and these promotions probably early November, uh, because every day in November is driving a billion dollars in online sales. Last year was the first time it did so. But it doesn't mean you need to give away the farm. The thing that we really saw last year is figure out your promotional strategy from the standpoint of how do we still surprise and delight customers, give them the promotions that they expect, but kind of space it out without killing our margins here, which I think will certainly tie into your marketplace strategy because if you're discounting 40% in the second week of November and they can go to Amazon and get it either more expensive or even cheaper there, then you're you're kind of double dipping against yourself some point. So the one thing we saw last year was, or I saw last year was a lot of category specific sales for short periods of times, which 
has a lot of value here. And I think this is one place where it can tie into your marketplace strategy. So for instance, you would see a sale on sweaters and coats for three days. And it, that was their deep discount on say second week in November, right? And it was for a couple of days. Now there's a couple of, there's a couple of benefits there. One is, you know, it's a peak shopping time. It's a big sale on sweaters and coats. So you can potentially, and this happened to me last year was get someone to buy that particular product and yet buy something else during that same shopping trip, even though it was either full price or lesser discounted than your big sweater and coat sale. So you protect margins a little bit because the one thing we do see is that 25% of all holiday gifts now are estimated to be self gifts. One of the values it has here, and this is where your direct tie into marketplaces comes in is with ordering. If you run a sweaters and coat sale and it's 40% off and that's your, your discount sale and you don't move those products, it gives you an indication that it could be your year-end closeout sale. You have this leftover inventory on your biggest sale of the year that you're going to have sitting there. So maybe that's something where you can put it onto the marketplaces at slightly cheaper prices, or you know that you're going to have this excess inventory sitting there where you can kind of control your inventory between your regular e-com site or your regular warehouse versus your marketplace one. So I think that's one where it probably ties in really well from one side to the other. You know, the other thing is you're going to be marketing for two months, man. You know, it's not a, it's not a week long season anymore. You know, from that, that cyber week, it's all November. And then it goes for the first couple of weeks of December pretty heavily. So I, I think that's one of the big things, but I think those category sales, it allows you to space out your sales a little bit more. It keeps people engaged with emails because, Oh, you know, I'm shopping for pajamas and cause my wife wants pajamas, but the coats are on sale today. So I've got to check back, you know, a couple days later. So you keep people opening emails, even if they bought already. And I think that's probably the one thing where just offhand, I could think of a tie in between marketplaces and, and the email side is those category sales. I think you're going to see a lot of them this year, but from an inventory standpoint, I think it can certainly help you plan for year end closeouts or just your inventory throughout the course of the, the holiday season. Does that answer kind of what you were looking for? Were you looking for something a little more differentiated from that? No, that was great. You know, I think that's definitely some things that fall well in line with what not only we do, but what our sellers are interested in. So thank you for that. That was extremely helpful. Hopefully it does help. So I also was doing webinar um, as top of mind because I was doing a webinar and holiday email prep uh, last week as well. So <laughs> you had your answer very, very well put together. That was nice. I had 13 things. And I'm like, ah, oh, which one do I choose? Greg, we're going to have contact info in the episode description, things like that. You guys, obviously from Channel Advisor, you work with companies of all sizes, right? You have people that are in all sorts of platforms or marketplaces. You guys support a whole variety of marketplaces. If someone wants to reach out to you or to someone at your company there, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Probably the best uh, email uh, alias to go to would be uh, marketing at channeladvisor.com. Easy enough. And channeladvisor.com is your domain. So we'll, we'll think there. But again, you can find the links to all that stuff, social handles and all those things in the uh, the episode description. Greg Shoup, everyone, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Channel Advisor. Greg, thanks for your time today. Enjoyed the conversation. Really, uh, really insightful and I'm sure extremely helpful for, uh, for these uh, companies listening who might be looking to either expand their presence or uh, kind of jump into the marketplaces. So thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. It was a great conversation. So uh, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, maybe we can do the next level. So take it up from uh, from beginners to more advanced or, or pick a, a singular topic and uh, kind of really hone in on it. So I'd love to do it again. Yeah, perfect. Uh, thanks everyone for listening, including our listener of the week, Meredith from New York City. If you want to be the listener of the week, let me know you're tuned in. If you're interested in telling your e-commerce story, I'd love to hear from you as well. So until next time, have a great day, everyone, and be kind to one another. <laughs>